It's good to have you here tonight. I trust you brought your Bible with you. We are going to go right to the text of the book of Ruth. We have concluded our studies in the book of Matthew over the last many moons. And uh, now we take on one of the Old Testament books, and it is much shorter than Matthew. I didn't say the message was shorter. I said the book was shorter. All right, they moved Ruth again. All right. Um, I would encourage you to start reading the book of Ruth. If you haven't read it recently, to read it a few times. We are going to be looking at it starting tonight. We have three more opportunities to look at Ruth, and those will be in May. So there are several other things going on for the next month. So we'll start tonight, and one month from tonight, we'll pick up for the second message. So that gives you plenty of time to uh, read the book of Ruth, and I would encourage you to read it through several times. Verse 1, chapter 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. I'm going to stop there. I was going to read the whole chapter, but we're a little bit shorter on time tonight, so I'm going to encourage you to read it. We have in our hands tonight an amazing book. I think most of you are very much aware of the fact that in the ancient Near East, these countries and these societies were very heavily patristic societies. That is, they were very heavily dominated by the men. The men were in strong leadership in the homes. The women were, in fact, in many of these cultures, considered a part of a man's property. And a man's rule was law in the home. The man was the undisputed head of the home. And the whole culture and society was built around this principle. It is amazing in the Bible that in the Bible at all that any women are mentioned with any prominence. There were very, very few women who rose to places of monarchy or other prominence in the ancient world. It did happen. And we also find that many times in the lives of the kings, there was a woman pulling the strings if you will, uh, so that I won't say women did not have influence, but they didn't usually have prominence. You look at many of these books, and we have many, many men who are mentioned. We have no idea who their wives were or who their daughters were. 
to have a book that focuses on not one, but two women is pretty amazing from the ancient world. This book is over 3,000 years old. You hold in your hands one of the most well-written love stories in human history. Now, it's not a love story in the sense that our modern culture sees it as two people saw each other and they fell in love at first sight and, and they were just all emotionally gushing over. But, but the way that God worked in their hearts and brought them together as a family, uh, some of these characters, two of these characters, is an incredible story. It's rich. It's incredibly well-written. It's a literary masterpiece in and of itself. And so I want, you to, I want to encourage you to be reading it, to enjoy it, to give it some thought. In these first five verses, we have the introduction to the book. And this is probably as far as I'll get tonight. And I'm sure I won't even get through all the material that I have. It is the introduction to the book... And in these five verses, we have more than 10 years of living. Now, I don't know about you, but if you had to summarize your last 10 years in one little paragraph, it would probably be a challenge. We also see something very interesting in this paragraph, that at the beginning of the paragraph, there is a man introduced who is the chief character in the paragraph. At the beginning of the paragraph, there, the name of the man was Elimelech in verse 2. There was a man, a certain man, and then we find out his name was Elimelech, and the name of his wife in verse 2 was Naomi. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 3. It says, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And so the writer inverts his theme from the main character switches the main character in the middle of the first paragraph, and Elimelech is hardly mentioned in the book. There is a discussion among uh, Bible writers, commentaries, and so on, as to who the main character is in the book. I'm going to leave that up to you to figure out. Some think it's Naomi, some think it's Ruth, some think it's Boaz. I'll let you think about that for a while. This book, written about ordinary people in an ordinary place back in the days of the judges was by the Jews considered so precious that it is one of five books that the Jews developed a tradition and an in-house requirement that in the tabernacle and later in the temple when they gathered for the feasts of the year, there were five books that they would have read publicly every year. One of those books was the book of Ruth. Every year at the Feast of Pentecost, when Israel celebrated the barley harvest, they would read the book of Ruth publicly in the tabernacle and the temple. It was such a delightful story. It was such an incredibly important part of the history of their kings that it became well known among all of the Israelites. Now, I want us to consider something here at the beginning of the book. In verse 1, 
It came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. In one sentence, the writer assumes that we know two major themes in the Bible. He assumes that we know what it meant to have the judges rule, and he assumes that we know the significance of a famine in the land. Actually, there's another one. He assumes that we know what the land is. In the Jewish scriptures, of course, the land, Ha-Eretz, is the promised land, the land of Israel, a phrase that Jews use to this day of the land that God gave to their ancestor Abraham. In the days of the judges, there was no king in Israel. That is, there was no earthly king. There was no human king. There was no capital city. There was no throne. There was no monarch. There was no parliament. There were no taxes. Huh. That sounds like a system you might want to retain for a while. But they had a king. Jehovah God was their king. And they were his people. A a system that he had established back in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 that had carried them through the years of the wilderness, it carried them through the victories of the days of Joshua. It was intended to carry them successfully and victoriously through the days of the judges. But it didn't necessarily work out quite so well. Recall that this was a time when Israel was supposed to be serving their divine king by finishing up the work of removing the Canaanites from the land as their number increased, as the Israelites increased in number and population, and they were able to occupy more villages and more towns. They were supposed to keep taking those towns and villages away from the Canaanites and expelling the Canaanites from the land, destroying the Canaanites, getting rid of the idolatry and the godlessness of the Canaanites. They were to cleanse the land of the polluting influence of idolatry from the earlier inhabitants. This was the purpose of the period of the judges. It was to finish what was begun in the generation of Joshua. Even Joshua did not do all that they were supposed to do, Joshua and the people, in his day. It was a time that was supposed to be characterized by Israelites obeying God, of living in obedience in the land of Israel and worshiping God at the tabernacle during the annual festivals. They were supposed to walk with God as their king. And they were a people who were supposed to be delighted to be subject to his rule. Now, this is not a comment on politicians of the day. But if I had a perfect king, I think I'd want to keep him. Instead, we find that The book of Judges testifies over and over again that the period of nearly 400 years was a time of chaos. It was a time of spiritual decline. Israel is characterized over and over again by disobedience, by neglecting God's covenant. And so we see God brings upon them periods of destruction and harm and oppression 
by powerful neighboring nations, including, at least one time, the Moabites coming in and taking over and oppressing Israel for a number of years. These times of oppression by the Moabites and the Philistines and other groups were punctuated by brief periods of God mercifully bringing a judge to leadership who would lead the people, lead the army out in faith, and they would remove the enemy. They would repent of their sins, come back to the Lord, and then the whole cycle would start over again. It was a time of downward spiraling patterns of obedience and disobedience. The whole tone of the book of Judges is rather heavy to read and discouraging. I'd rather read Joshua than Judges, but we need to read them both. You're all probably familiar with the last verse of the book of Judges, which is just a page before the first chapter of Ruth. In those days, there was no king in Israel meaning no earthly king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I know, I think we're probably, most of us, familiar with that. Now, in, in the midst of that time of chaos, as we read the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth itself seems to have been, uh, the, the event seemed to have occurred in a time of relative calm. Uh, there doesn't seem to be an oppressing army uh, or anything like that. It seems that the events of the book of Ruth occurred during one of those temporary peaceful times, and we have a story of normal people living in a normal village on the edge of the Judean wilderness. Um, they're not hiding their grain like others had to. They're not fearing an army. They're not hiding from soldiers. They They seem to be living a normal routine. So it appears that it occurs during time of peace. And so that is the period of the judges that he talks about in verse 1. Now, the second part of that verse says that there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. It came about. It just so happened. Now, there's something here that I want you to consider with me, and this is going to take several minutes, but it's critical. I think it's critical to appreciate the overall message of the book of Ruth. Uh, I will, as I say this, uh, it is not, this is not a unanimous opinion among Bible teachers. I believe that the early chapter here, these first five verses of the book, depict for us a man named Elimelech who purposely chooses disobedience. He purposely chooses to do what is right in his own eyes, instead of doing what he should have done under the covenant of God. And that his own death, perhaps the deaths of his sons, and the calamity that he brings upon his family is probably due to his own disobedience, at least in part. Now, there are some who don't teach that. There are some who think, Elimelech, just, there's a famine, so what do you do? You find a place where you can take care of your family. And Elimelech was a noble man because he tried to go somewhere where he could take care of his family. I want us to develop a context here to help us see this from an Old Testament, early Old Testament perspective. Any time in the Old Testament, after the book of Deuteronomy, if we encounter, encounter a famine in the land of Israel, there are some passages that should grab our attention, and the truth of a famine in Israel should also grab our 
attention. When God is the perfect king upon his throne, if everything is well, why would there be a famine? Is God unable to provide for the people under his rule? It ought to bring some questions to our mind. And so I want to ask you to go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Those of you that are in the M&M said, praise the Lord. He didn't say Genesis, because I usually go something. There's always a root in Genesis, right? Those of you that have had my, a couple of the, my Old Testament courses said, okay, Deuteronomy 28 again. But if you've never looked at this passage, I want to take time to look at it tonight because as you read your Old Testament, after the book of Deuteronomy, which is all of the kings, the chronicles, all of the prophets, if you don't understand what God said in Deuteronomy 28 to Israel, you won't understand the rest of the Old Testament. This sets the tone. And I think in just a couple minutes, you will see clearly why I say this. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is a summary of God's covenant with Israel, and it is a conditional covenant. You will notice the word if is used several times. Verse tw uh, chapter 28, verse 1. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord God. You won't be able to run fast enough to get away from these blessings. They're going to catch up with you and tackle you. They're going to overtake you. That's if you obey. Blessed you will be in the country, a city, and blessed you shall be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the, in, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed you shall be when you go out. Verse 7, the Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all you put your hand to. He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That's what's going to happen. And as a result, verse 10, so that all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. Verse 11, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast and in the produce of your ground in the land in which the Lord swore to your fathers to give. Does that sound like famine to you? He goes on. You can read it. Look at verse 15. But that's the opposite, right? But if, it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which, with which I charge you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You won't be able to run fast enough to get away from them. They're going to tackle you and get you. Cursed you shall be in your city, and cursed you shall be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. And in case you didn't pick up on it, these are parallel to what he just said, the opposite. 
He goes down through the list. Now, verse 17, those of you ladies probably haven't done a lot of this recently, but a basket refers to a basket of grain that you grind into flour for your family. And the kneading trough is not the same as the feeding trough. It's where you make the bread. You're going to be cursed in your grain basket and your kneading trough. Now, does that sound like famine? That sounds more like famine. And you go on down through this, and uh, he describes the fact that the, the produce, the crops, will not uh, be giving their abundance. Verse 21, the Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and fever, inflammation, fiery heat, with the sword and the blight and mildew, and they will pursue you until you perish. Now notice verse 23, the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. You have this Middle Eastern sun baking down upon you with no rain until the ground gets as hard as iron. Now in Ohio, we like it once in a while when the sun shines. But remember that Israel in the Middle East is in the middle of the world's largest desert climate area. It extends from the west coast of Africa all the way across the Sahara into the Sinai, all the way over into the Saudi Arabian desert, and on all the way to China, into the China desert. It is a vast area of thousands of miles of desert, and there's Israel. It's very easy for the Lord to make it dry in Israel. It's also very easy for the Lord to make it wet in Israel because the Mediterranean Sea is right there. He just has to make the wind change by a couple degrees and he can make the difference. Verse 24, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. When we find a famine, after the book of Deuteronomy, we find a famine in Israel, or we find Israel in a place of trouble or difficulty or under the thumb of an enemy army or an enemy king. If we find them having trouble with disease and death among them, if we find them under some kind of a calamity and difficulty, we know instantly from knowing Deuteronomy 28 that these people are walking in disobedience to God and God is punishing them. It's very clear. The prophets' entire messages come out of this chapter. Entire books of prophecy. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they stood up and they said, if you will just obey the Lord, he'll protect us. But you have disobeyed the Lord, and that's why all these bad things are happening. And if you don't turn around and repent and trust the Lord, it, we're going to all be doomed. And guess what? They were right, because it's exactly what the Lord said in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So here we have this expression from the Lord, this information from the Lord in this covenant. This is God's covenant. 
and there's, and there's a word that's going to come up in the book of Ruth. You're going to see it. It's the covenant mercy of God, the tender mercy of God. It is the Hebrew word hesed. H-E-S-E-D is the closest way to spell it in English. We'll come back to this later. It is the concept that God is always loyal to his covenant. God has never once given his word that he did not keep it. Even when that word was a word about punishment. So, you're an Israelite. You're trying to feed your family. I don't know if Elimelech had a farm, if he had flocks and herds. I don't know if he had a trade. We're not told. But just put yourself in Elimelech's sandals tonight, if you will. You have a wife. You have two sons. And things are getting desperate. It hasn't rained. Maybe in years. And if you live in Bethlehem, you're already on the dry side of the ridge, and it doesn't take long for things to go bad. There may have been a few other areas in Israel where they weren't running out of food quite as quickly, but there's a famine that evidently spreads through most of it, so it's gone on for some time. Now, now if you are an Israelite in Israel in the time of the judges and there is famine in the land, what is the response God is looking for from the Israelites? Repent. Repent. Go to your neighbor's house and say, neighbor, we have to repent. Somewhere we have gone wrong. Do you see that? That is the biblical response to famine under the old covenant because God would never send famine to his children who were being obedient. That would be a breach of the covenant on God's part. If there is famine, there has been disobedience. Do you remember back when Joshua was the captain, the, the, the leader under the Lord's host, and they were in the land, and they went to Jericho, first battle in Jericho, and they win. They go to the next battle at Ai, and they lose. How can you lose a battle when God is on your side and he says, go fight? And the people are crying out, God, why did you forsake us? What happened? What went wrong? Lord, where were you? And the Lord says basically to Joshua, Joshua, shut up and listen. If things were right, things would have gone right. If things went wrong, things are wrong. Look in the camp for the sin. And one man, one man caused the death of dozens. So when I turn to the book of Ruth and I see famine in the land in verse 1 and I find a man who is an Israelite, he's of the tribe of Judah, his ancestors now have lived in this land for at least a couple of hundred years and instead of responding to a famine by urging his neighbors and his children, his wife, to fall upon their faces, to offer up sin offerings, to take burnt offerings to the tabernacle, to plead with the God of heaven for mercy and help them find, Lord, show us the sin in the camp. Instead, what does he do? 
He says, well, this God ain't worth keeping around. What good is a God that makes these kind of promises that doesn't keep them? I'm getting out of Dodge. And so he bails out. He leaves the land of promise. He leaves the place of the covenant. He leaves the people of the covenant. And I suspect he left the God of the covenant. At the very least, he showed the kind of despising for the covenant that Esau showed to the promise. So he bails out. It's a spiritual low point. It's completely similar to the context of the whole book of Judges. We, we could go on through a number of other passages of Scripture. But I think you get the point tonight. If you understand Deuteronomy chapter 28, and if, you, I would, if you've never really wrestled with that, read chapters 28, 29, and 30. It gives you the entire history of the world in three chapters. If you want to know what's going to happen to Israel next, just read this section. It's in there. It ain't over yet. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but when it gets better, it's going to get real good. Well, we are out of time. That's point A under point one. Context, 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 context. The writer wants us to know exactly when this happened. And I give you a clue to look for as you read through this book. God gives us a picture of covenant-keeping loyalty in a different man. And I don't, I'm, I'm careful about types and analogies in the Old Testament, but I really believe the book of Ruth gives us a picture of our Savior. And I think that it, that is not stretching the truth of the text. There will be a man in this book who shows mercy to those who have forsaken the covenant. And therein I find great hope for myself in the mercy of God. I hope you find it to be a rich book to read. I encourage you to read it often.